Good morning, everyone. Hello, hello. Everyone's still talking. Hi, Marvin. I know. I'm going to try it again. <coughs> good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for showing on this really weird, blustery, snowy Sunday in March. Um, we're glad you could be here. If not, we're glad you joined us online. I'm sure a lot of us would have liked to join online today, but we're here, and there's people here, so that's great. Um, so we're going to start the service with some worship through the music, and then we're going to get the worship through the word. Brent's going to bring the word this morning. So I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to get started. Uh, God, we are so thankful for who you are in our lives um, today and every day. I'm so thankful that we get the opportunity to gather together in this wonderful community and get to worship you and get to praise you. So I just pray a blessing over all who are here, all who are watching or are going to watch later. Um, and we say, come Holy Spirit. Uh, come in this place, Jesus. And we thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. So however you feel comfortable, you can worship. We're going to get started.
I'm all about the deep, worshipful songs, but this one's going to get a little more upbeat. So just be ready. I'm ready. I'm excited.
morning we all made it here through the snow just give your give yourselves a hand you know we're about 30 inches below the normal snow total so yeah we've been spoiled Um, welcome to the vineyard community church we're so glad you could join us here at the vineyard and all of you at home our service today is streaming live on facebook Also, we will be sharing communion following these announcements. For those of you at home, grab a cup and some bread or crackers so that you can join us. We are continuing our sermon series, Christians Living in a Divided World. 
This series is a result of the interest survey you took at the beginning of the year. Pastor Brent Paulson is bringing us today's message from 1 Corinthians 11, 17-32. Grab your Bible or cell phone, tablet or laptop to look up, today, look up today's text. You will also find it printed in your bulletin. Here's our Food Resource Center schedule this week. Tomorrow, Monday, March 20th, we need volunteers for food bag prep from 4.30 to 6 p.m. On Tuesday from 11 to 3, we need volunteers for continued prep work. From 4 to 7 p.m., volunteers are needed to help with our food distribution and with cleanup. See you there. Next Saturday, March 25th, is our fifth class for the meaning of marriage. That means we only have one more left. A vision for married and single people. For those involved, remember to read chapter 8. Not 7. We read 7 last week, right? <laughs> Support our youth at the Youth Bake Sale here at the Vineyard. Buy something delicious in the lobby following the service. I'm good. I already got my brownies that Katie made, so I'm good. Um, <laughs> our Vineyard Youth Group is hosting an egg hunt for our Kingdom Kids. Come to Kingdom Kids class at the usual time on Sunday, April 2nd, and have fun searching outside, fingers crossed, prayers, <laughs> the building for Easter eggs. Even though I think it would be kind of neat to search for Easter eggs in the snow. <laughs> Don't forget today's offering. We have a small table set up at the back of the sanctuary for your offering, or donate on our church website or on Facebook. Now, Scott and Lori Purdom will lead us in communion. If you did not receive your communion cup when you came in, please raise your hand. And for those of you view at home, grab your cup of cup and bread and join us. Good morning, church. I have a reading I want to read uh, this morning. It's from Alistair Begg. Uh, good thoughts, but uh, I wish they were original with me, but they're not. That's okay. Um, and this is based on the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus directed the disciples to feed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children with nothing but a young boy's five loaves of bread and two fish, they faced a seemingly impossible situation. As Andrew questions, what are they for so many? But the twelve did as Jesus directed them. So the people sat down, separated, separated them into groups, and divided the loaves and the fish, and, and divided, and divided, and divided. And before they knew it, a miracle had unfolded. The five loaves and the two fish managed to feed thousands, and not just with the tiniest little bit of food, but with such an abundance that they all ate and were satisfied. In fact, in a rather humorous turn of, of events, there were even leftovers. Just as God had done centuries earlier with the manna in the wilderness, here the shepherd of Israel provided his, proved his identity and provided for his people's needs, both literally and symbolically. It should be impossible for us to consider this story and not recognize that God takes unmanageable situations and unbelievably limited resources 
and multiplies them for the well-being of others and for the glory of his name. And he can do this with our lives as well. Perhaps if you are the only Christian in your family, in your class, or at your job, you may wonder, like Andrew, what am I among so many? What can I say? What can I do? But here is the real question to ask. Have I truly offered up my resources to God, my time, talents, energy, gifts, and finances? They may not be much, but God can multiply them. As you look out on on your day and your week, offer yourself to God. Your inability is his opportunity. Your weakness and your sense of dependence form the very basis upon which he shows himself uh, to be strong. With nothing but mere loaves and fish, he satisfied thousands, being no doubt that he can use you to do great things of eternal worth if you will only ask him. And as I read that this morning, I thought, you know, it's, it's important for us to remember that God can take the little bit that we have and multiply it again and again. And as we share in communion this morning, we think of, well, that's just a little act. It doesn't mean much, but in fact, it means so much. And God does so much through so little. And we, we remember him. Uh, and Lori's going to read us the scripture, and then we'll partake of the elements. I'm reading from the New International Version, Matthew 26, 26 through 30. That was uh, 2011. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Disciples fiddled with these little cups, too. (laughs) The blood of Christ shed for you. Drink in remembrance of him. morning. Teresa and I were at a uh, national leadership meetings for the vineyard, and then we um, 
went to this thing called Exponential, which was a interdenominational cool thing down at this um, big Baptist church, about a 15,000 member Baptist church. It was almost as big as our church. Um, and almost. <laughs> and we, uh, and then we uh, skipped out a few days and uh, flew my daughter and her boyfriend down and we went to Disney World. Yay, that was fun. It was a good time. So that's where we've been. And it was nice. It was like 80 degrees and sunny and and um, we rented <laughs> We rented an electric car because I thought, I want to see what this is like, you know. And like halfway through, we realized the electric car ran fine. There's just no any, nowhere to get it charged. So, so we pl- we plugged in at this, at this. Um, what we finally found a wal- found a Walgreens with like one fast charger. So we plug it into the fast charger, and it comes up on the thing. Whoop! <laughs> this is like 10 in the morning. We'll be charged. We'll, we'll have a 100-mile charge by 9 o'clock tonight. And I'm like, I don't know about you, Patrice, but I really don't want to spend my vacation at Walgreens. I, I don't know. But. So anyway, um, that was our... Sometime I'll, I'll write an article or something about our journeys in electric cars. Cars work fine. Infrastructure, not so good. Um, so today, continuing a series we've been doing on living in a divided world, which we do in case you haven't noticed. And we're coming up on elections again, which will tend to rile people up even more. And one of the things that we can do as a community and as a church is is live differently in the midst of that. doesn't mean we can't disagree with each other. doesn't mean we can't have our own opinions and thoughts about that. But one of the things that we do is we come together. In fact, in we come in unity. We, we do community. We do communion together. And the reason we do that is because we all come from a central place. We're all, we're all here because of a central person. We're all here because we recognize that we are fallen, broken people who have been loved and redeemed and transformed by this wonderful person, Savior God, named Jesus. And that's why we're here, right? So we all stand together in that one unifying place that brings us all together, whether we're rich or poor, black or white, whatever we are, that's why we're here. And so, and we're glad that you're here this morning. Whoever you are, I trust that God has brought you here for a reason and that he will minister to all of us today. And so I'm going to open with a prayer. And we're going to pray too for one of them. the neighbors of one of our of our uh, member Connie, who one of her neighbors has been missing for two days out in in Thompson, and what's her name? Sue. So Father, we we do lift up Sue. We pray for her. We pray for um, God that you would help her to be found. You're you're good at finding lost people, so come and find her, and come and find all of all of the lost people in our lives. Lord, come and meet them. And, and be with them, and come and meet all of our needs today, Lord. We all come with, we all come hungry. We all come yearning to be filled. And so I pray that you would do that. Amen. So, like I said, we live in in this world that's very divided. In fact, I just saw again where there's a whole group of people from Oregon who want to become part. Of, they want their state to become part of Idaho so that they can be with people who 
um, politically and socially and morally and stuff agree with them more. And so they're trying to, like, have Idaho become, or Oregon, this this part of Oregon become part of Idaho, which is really interesting. I mean, that's just how, what's happening in our world around us. It's what's happening in, in our lives, and some of us see that. And some of that's driven by, have you noticed that some of it's kind of driven by the media? And so if you're listening to this, side, you get driven by that side. If you listen to this side, you get driven by that side. I, I think that, not that it's wrong to listen to either side, but I think we need to be listening to somebody else first. Don't you? Isn't there a source that we should be listening to before we listen to all the other sources? It should be more influential on our lives. Um, so we live in a lot of divisions. In fact, there's been um, a rise in conflict, not only in human-to-human relationships, but in, in, um, in Alaska, they've had problems with, with the conflict between humans and grizzly bears. And so the, the game, the Alaskan Department of Fishing game, is advising hikers, hunters, and fishermen to take extra precaution and keep alert of bears while in the field. They advise the outdoorsmen and women wear noisy little bells on their clothing so as not to startle the bears that aren't expecting them. They also advise outdoorsmen to carry pepper spray with them in case they encounter a bear. My daughter worked in Glacier National Park for a long time. She used to carry, it was almost like a fire extinguisher, a pepper spray for the grizzly bears. Um, but they also, they said it's a good idea to watch out for fresh bear sign. Um, and they call that scat. You know what scat is? Yeah, it's poop. Um, it's poop. So outdoorsmen should recognize the difference between the black bear and the grizzly bear of dung because they're different. They said black bear dung is smaller, contains lots of berries and squirrel, squirrel fur. Grizzly bear dung has little bells in it and smells like pepper. So divisions everywhere, you know. Um, all right. So anyway, um, there. You know... I, I just get really creative when I go to other states and stuff. It's like amazing. Um, yes. There was. There was scat. Yes. There was scat. We had goose scat. We used to have, Lupe's not here today, I don't think. She used to feed the, the geese. And I would, be, I would be like, Lupe, please don't feed the geese. They like poop everywhere. But, you know, Lupe, she just loves everything. So anyway, um... So we, we live in this, and today's passage actually is, is a passage where, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and I'm kind of really grateful to the Corinthian church. If you ever read through Paul's letters, he writes to these different churches, and he usually writes because they're doing something stupid. Now, we never do anything stupid, but you know these churches did something stupid. And the reason we have all this information a lot of the information we have about what we believe and how we should act and all that kind of stuff is because of the Corinthians. Because they were so messed up that it gave us this whole, like two books, not just one book, two letters, that tells us a lot about how we should live. So I always think it's kind of funny. Like we, when we get to heaven, we can thank the Corinthians Christians. They're like, thank you for being so messed up. You really helped us a lot. Because, you know, um, you get it? Anyway, um, so one of the things that they had had messed up in, which was kind of interesting, is in communion. They, you know, they 
they found amazing ways to cause divisions. And they, they caused, one of the divisions that they had was in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper. This thing that we just did. And, uh, and this morning, one of my desires is to, to communicate to you, first of all, what this is. What is this thing that we call communion? Um, what were the problems that were, were happening in the Corinthian church regarding communion? Because Paul spends a chapter on this. And then... How can we um, understand it and live it out right? Because um, the fact that we, even if we know about it, the fact is, one of the amazing things about communion is that, that literally it's something that we eat and drink. Even though it's a little tiny thing right now, it's a little cup and stuff like that. Early on it was actually a whole meal. But it's something, it's a picture of us kind of taking into ourselves that which Jesus has done, his death his broken body, taken into ourselves, and his, his poured out blood, his cup. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, something more than just kind of a faith. I mean, it is faith connected, but it's also very visceral, isn't it? It's very physical. There's a physicality to it that's amazing, where, where we actually participate. We take, we take and literally kind of um, and symbolically, take take um, and and we we are are asking Jesus to come into us, and we're showing that by what we eat and drink. And the church, ironically, the church historically has been divided over this too. In fact, there have actually been martyrs um, who have been killed by other Christians by what their beliefs in this are. Now we we come from a more Protestant tradition. So ours, we tend to interpret the, the body and blood in a more symbolic um, way than our Catholic brothers and sisters might. The Catholic brothers and sisters see it in a very real sense. When Jesus said, this is my body, they would see it as kind of, in a sense, a literal transubstantiation version of, of the body and blood of Jesus. We see it... Um, to a certain extent more symbolically, but I still believe that, like Luke Martin Luther said, that the presence of Christ is really there. You understand that? And so that the real presence of Christ is present when we're doing, when we're participating in communion. And so, early on in the church that Paul's dealing with, their, their main problem, and let me, read, let me read through the scripture first, because it makes more sense when... Um, when we hear it. Um, first of all, let me read the, the actual communion passage that Paul talks about when he says, he says this. He's going through and he's quoting from Jesus in Mark 14. He says, While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat, this is my body. And one of the reasons we don't believe it literally was his body is because he said, take and eat, this is my body, but was he handing them his body? Not literally, in a sense. Um, for, um, and then he goes on and he says, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of my, the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until I drink it 
um, when I drink it new with you in, in my Father's kingdom. And that was, we don't understand that, but well, that was kind of a vow that he was making. Back then they used to make vows that I will not eat or drink until this thing is done. In fact, some of the um, people that were persecuting Paul after Paul became a Christian said, we make a vow to not eat or drink until Paul, Paul is killed. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to not eat and drink until that day when everything the Father wants to accomplish is going to be accomplished. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to participate in this until I accomplish everything that I promised to do in your life and in your world, until I make everything right. Isn't that great? And that's great for those of us who come from, from recovery backgrounds because Jesus isn't participating with the drink until the day when everything is made new. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so, um, what Paul says, and this is Paul's kind of um, reiteration of that, but it's also where he's, he's speaking about some of the issues and challenges that they were having in the church. He says, them, he says to them, and this is beginning in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 17, and again, this church had, had screwed up, and I'll explain how they had screwed up the Lord's table and what they had done with it. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. And it's always good to read what's ahead. If you're ever reading through the Bible, read the earlier part of chapter 11 in Corinthians because in there Paul says, I praise you in that you have remembered me in everything and that you've been trying to live out the traditions which I passed on to you. And so Paul writes to them, and first of all, he praises them. But then he comes back and later on in chapter 11, and then he says, in the following directives, I don't have any praise for you, for your meetings are doing more harm than good. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been in church meetings where they do more harm than good. Part of the reason that, that we have the system of kind of polity or government that we have is we used to be in a church that had a type of system of government and stuff that was really did more harm than good it was really not good and it would end up with literal fights and i mean not physical fights at least not that i know of anyway but it was it was horrible we'd leave the we'd leave some of the meetings and trees and i'd go oh my gosh that was terrible you know isn't that terrible you come to church and you leave and you go that was awful that isn't what this is supposed to be about is it He says, for in the first place, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to, to, to show which have God's approval. Now, I think there Paul's kind of being a sarcastic. He's saying, yeah, there has to be divisions among you because some of you obviously are better than other ones. And I think Paul is being sarcastic, okay? I think. He says, so when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. You're not even eating the Lord's Supper. You don't get what it is, and I'll explain what it is in a minute. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, this passage has often been used to beat people up. In fact, some people, Teresa and I had a friend who literally 
would never take communion because he's never felt worthy. Later on in this passage, it talks about taking the body and blood in an unworthy manner. He's not talking about people who feel unworthy about coming to Christ. That's, to be honest, that's a requirement for coming to communion, right? We come there because we're unworthy, don't we? If we, if we were all worthy, would we even need it? We wouldn't. So that isn't what he's talking about. What he's talking about is these sociological and economic divisions that were going on in the church that literally represented, it was a picture of what happened in Roman culture. In Roman culture, Roman culture was um, set up on a very hierarchical scale, even though it was supposedly built on some of the Greek democratic principles. Um, it never really lived that out. And so in the Roman household, they would have like a special dining room where their friends, their contemporaries, the people that were like them could come and eat. That was the Roman, that was the Roman kind of way of doing things. And then they had other rooms where the servants would eat and stuff like that. Well, what was happening is when they were coming together, that's what they were doing. Because the early Lord's Supper was actually a meal. It wasn't just a tiny little wafer thing. It was actually a meal, like Jesus did. And they'd come together and they'd have this meal. And during this meal, what was happening is, is the Romans would have their friends and their rich counterparts be in this dining room, which held about nine people. And then these other rooms in the house for the servants and stuff held about 40 people. They would eat like, I mean, they got like the, you know, the shrimp cocktails and the lobster and stuff. And the people in the other room got like the Ritz crackers and the, you know, the bratwurst or whatever. I don't know what they got. Um, but anyway, do you get it? There's a division there. There's a separation. And Paul's going, this is so not what Jesus set out to do. So not what Jesus set out to do. And he goes on. He says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, and I'll explain this in a minute. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and saying, This is the cup and a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't that cool? We're, whenever we do this, we're proclaiming. We're, we're announcing to ourselves and to the world around us that the death and resurrection, what Jesus has done for us. And don't you, you know, when you see something that's really good, don't you want to just call your friends in and say, hey, I, I do this to Teresa all the time. We have a, we have a, um, <laughs> to Teresa, much, much to Teresa's disdain. I, I love electronic stuff. And so I have Google Home minis throughout our house. And I have a man cave. And so Teresa will be in the kitchen, which is a long way from my man cave. It's like 15 feet. And so I will inevitably announce, to, you know, it, it does announcements. And so I'll go, hey, Google announce. It takes me longer to announce than it would to go walk in and tell her, hey, Google announce. And they'll say, what, what should I say? And I say, hey, Teresa, come and see this. 
And so she'll come out. Usually it's something on TV that I thought was really cool or a concert or something. And she'll come out and go. At first, the first probably year, she's like, honey, can you just come in there and tell me? And I'm like, it's kind of a long ways. So um, it's easier just to do that. So, But we like to proclaim to other people, don't we? When, does he call you from other rooms? You call him from other rooms? Really? Yeah, you guys have a really big house, you know. It's like uh, the opposite end of the couch. <laughs> Amen. All right. So, anyway. So we proclaim this. We proclaim it. We proclaim to the world. Part of what we're called to be is people. If we really get what Jesus has done for us, there's going to be something in us that wants to share it with other people. I love to tell people about who God is, what God is doing. I love it. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now this creates a problem because a lot of people interpret this, like Teresa's my friend, that until they're worthy, they can never have communion. Or they come into a church and they're like, oh, I've got all this stuff in my life. I shouldn't have... No, that's when you should have communion, right? What is communion? It's proclaiming the fact that he died for this stuff in my heart and he rose so that I can be forgiven. So please, don't ever, don't ever deny yourself because of this. This is speaking about a sociological and economic differentiation that Paul wants them to look at what they're doing and go, this is not even part of what the Lord's Supper is. Do you understand that? I want you, next time you hear somebody preach on this, and, get, and they go, you need to really look at yourself. Do you have any sin in your life? And whenever people do that to me when they're doing communion, I'm like, oh yeah, I got a lot of sin in my life. You know, That's why I'm having communion. I need it. You get it? That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is look at what you're doing. Have you completely forgotten what this thing is about? Have you completely divided yourself so much that you're, you're alienating whole groups of people from joining you? Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat. Drink the bed of the cup. For whoever drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ, not our body, but the body, our, our brothers and sisters all over the world eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But we are, if we were more discerning in regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Nonetheless, when when we are judged in this way, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. And so you get what the problem is in the Corinthian church. They had created social classes. In, they had basically made the church look like society. And you know, the sad part is, today, often, the church looks like society divided sometimes Republican-Democrat, black-white. Early on in the early days of Pentecostalism, the church was 
really divided racially. It still is today. That's part of the reason that we push, and I push, for us not to be. Because it just, Scripture just screams out and says, no, this is to be every nation, tongue, and tribe, all of us coming together, right? What's heaven going to be like? Every nation, tongue, and tribe. What are we supposed to pray for? May your kingdom come. May your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. May it look like, may our church look like heaven on earth. Amen? During the, during the early, what's called the Pentecostal movement, which is when kind of people began really realizing there's still a Holy Spirit around, there was a guy named um, Charles Parham who had uh, started up the school and kind of had some early kind of encounters with the Holy Spirit. The problem with Charles Parham in his school is that it was segregated. He was, he was sympathetic to the Ku Klux Klan. And so there was a young man named, named um, uh, William Seymour. And Seymour had to sit outside the door of Charles Parham's classes to listen to the teachings of what was going on. In the face of constant humiliation, Seymour became an, an apostle of reconciliation. He developed a spirituality that in 1906 led to the revival in Los Angeles, in which most Pentecostal historians believe that was the cradle of Pentecostalism. And now, I don't, I'm not talking about bad, weird Pentecostalism. I'm talking about just an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And part of what the Holy Spirit does when He comes, when, when the Spirit of God genuinely comes, people come together. It may be categorically stated that the black Pentecostalism, which emerged out of the context of the brokenness of the black existence, began an outbreaking of amazing experiences. In their liberation, in their songs, and the way they told the stories of the Bible, Seymour affirmed his black heritage by introducing Negro spirituals, Negro music into his liturgy at a time when most music, most black music was considered inferior and unfit for Christian worship. For he had drunk from the invisible institution of the Holy Spirit in a black folk Christianity. In these revivals in Los Angeles in the early 1900s, white bishops and black workers, men and women, Asians and Mexicans, white professors and black laundry women came together as equals. Proud, well-dressed preachers came. Soon their high looks were replaced with wonder and conviction that came that you often find in them in a short time, they were wallowing on the floor, asking God to forgive them for their prejudice and making, make them little children. And that was the, the beginning of the outpouring of the Spirit of God, but it started within the context of yet once again divided church. Did this just happen in Corinthians? No, it happens all the time. And so Paul goes on and he, he explains to them and he says, for I took to you, and Paul's reminding them of what he's already taught them. For I received the Lord what I passed on to you, 
the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after he took the cup saying this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes now let me go back a little bit and explain where communion came from. Because it wasn't originally just a Christian thing that had to do with the body and blood of Jesus. It's rooted in the Old Testament, in the Passover meal. When Jesus does this the first time, he's doing it at a Passover meal. The Passover meal was a meal that the the Israelites celebrated the Passover of God and their deliverance from Egypt. Do you remember that whole How many of you are familiar with that story? The Passover. It was when God passed over the firstborn of the Israelites in his judgment on the firstborn period. In fact, the, the meaning of Passover is on the same night I will pass through Egypt. This is, this is when God's delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And Paul is using it, and Jesus is using it as a small picture of what one day God's going to do for all of humanity through the shedding of the blood of Jesus for all of us the deliverance of all of us from even an even greater bondage than Israel or than Israel was in in the Egyptians even greater bondage to the slavery and the tyranny they were under under Pharaoh on that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt now why does he strike down the firstborn? There's been this progressive judgment. You know that you know the plagues of Egypt. I don't assume that people understand this. Read sometime in Exodus, like the book. Read the book of Exodus, and you'll see it. And what happens is the people of Israel are in slavery to the Egyptians, and God comes and first asks nicely, "Would you please let my people go through Moses?" And, and Pharaoh goes, "No." And then God asks nicely again, please let my people go. And he goes, no. So then God begins this, this process, and the Egyptians worshipped all these different gods. So God begins this process of systematically um, sort of making fun of all the Egyptian gods, but also overthrowing them. He does this plague of frogs. He said, you worship frogs. Okay, I'll give you frogs. You can have frogs in your soup, frogs in your bed, blah, 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 blah. They worship the Nile. They worship the river gods. So what does God do? He makes it full of blood. They worship the sun. So what does God do? He makes it dark. You follow this? There's a spiritual battle going on there. When it, The final kind of judgment in this process is God. And, and this is where literally Pharaoh's kind of flipping God off. And God's going, okay, really? You want to do this? You want to do this, Pharaoh? You want to stand toe-to-toe with me? Okay, it's on. MMA, bare knuckles, you got it. 
The last part of this has to do with the firstborn because the Egyptians worshipped their firstborn sons. They considered them divine and they considered Pharaoh a god. And so what God is doing is systematically stripping their theological framework out from under them. And he says, I will bring judgment. The blood, this blood, the blood that, and what the Israelites were supposed to do is put the blood of a lamb over their doorposts, and when the angel of death came, he would what? Pass over. Pass over. Now, this didn't have to do with ethnicity. This didn't have to do with whether you were Jewish or Egyptian, right? It had to do with whoever had this blood. This was very egalitarian. Whoever had the blood of a lamb over their doorpost was passed over. Why? We'll get to that in a second. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the way you are to commem- this is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come you shall celebrate as a festival, as a lasting ordinance. So by the time Jesus comes along, many generations later, they used to celebrate Passover. And in the Passover, they would sit down as a family, they would recline because it was a pic- people that reclined were people that were no longer slaves. They were free and they could recline. And they would have this meal. And they would have a big lamb. They would cook a lamb. And they would have these cups that they shared. And each cup was explained. And they would have this bread. They would have three pieces of of matzah bread. They were unleavened bread, which represented the fact that they had to leave Egypt really quick. And when you're trying to leave quick, you can't bake bread with yeast. Because guess what happened? How long does it take for yeast to rise? I don't know, but it takes a long time, I think. I don't know. It takes a long while. So they made unleavened bread. Well, they had these three pieces of bread. And these three pieces of bread were, were symbolic of different things. Nobody was ever quite sure. The, the rabbis and stuff would, had all kinds of different ideas. But Rich Nathan once, Rich, Rich Nathan was the is pastor emeritus of the Columbus Vineyard. And Rich once, he was, he was brought up an Orthodox Jew. And one day, the person who was to become his wife brought him to one of the, a setter meal. And it was done by a, a Messianic Jewish person. And this person um, started explaining the setter. They, you know, they were talking about the cups, the cup of deliverance, the cup of praise, the cup of... That's why we drink the cup. It's these pictures of this cup of everything that God did. Well, the bread you know, symbolized something. And, this, and nobody had ever really explained to Rich what, what the bread meant. Nobody really knew. The rabbis kind of debated it on and off. But the, the middle piece of the bread, they would always take, and they would break it in half, and they would take part of, part of the half, and they would pr- wrap it up in a cloth, and they would hide it, and the kids would find it later on and bring it out, and, um, and they would have it at the end of the meal as kind of a dessert kind of thing. And Rich says this. He says that when he, he was at the setter meal once, and this guy is, is explaining this to him, what this whole thing is. And he said, when he came to this place, when he began explaining what this thing was, 
what this meal was and what that that hidden piece represented. He he came to this place and he says this. I thought I'd never really understood why we have the three matzahs. The rabbis say that persons that perhaps they represent the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or perhaps they represent the three persons of the Trinity. Or, wait, or perhaps they represent the priests, Levites, and the people of God. But this Jewish priest who had become Christian said, these three matzahs represent the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember that we always take the middle matzah and break it and we wrap it in a cloth and when we put it away and we take it out again and unwrap it and hold it up, do you know why we break the matzah in the middle? And I thought, Rich said, I haven't a clue. If you've read the rabbis, there's all kinds of interpretations, but there's no certain meaning. He said, here's the meaning. As we read Matthew 26, 28 through, 26 through 28, which is, the account of Jesus' Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given it, he broke it and he reinterprets it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he, when he had given thanks, he took the cup and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. You see what Jesus is doing? He's radically reinterpreting the Passover. His disciples, they're sitting there and they're waiting for like, well, where's the lamb? First of all, we don't even have a lamb for this thing. And I would say something that rhymes with lamb, but I won't. Um, but anyway, he's, he's like, what? He's like, we, we, we don't have a lamb. Now Jesus is like, he, he's talking about his body and his blood. What is all this? Do you understand how confusing this would have been to the first disciples? Because they're used to hearing the Passover. Jesus is changing it. He's fulfilling it. Then he took the cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them and he said, drink from it all of you. This is the body of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And remember, this broken body of Jesus was wrapped in a cloth in a funeral shroud and placed in a tomb hidden away. Remember how they took and broke that middle piece of bread? And they wrapped it up and they hid it away. For centuries they'd done this. And then three days later, the stone in front of the tomb was rolled away. And when the disciples went to look for the wrapped up body, it wasn't there. And all they found was the cloths. But his body was raised from the dead and Christ was resurrected. And Rich says this, Well, I tell you, friends, when the host of the meal took that matzah and broke it and said these words, which many of you have heard hundreds of times, but I'd never heard, and I was 18. This is my body, which is for you. It was like the Spirit of God hit me in the chest. And I had one of those profound, unsettling moments where you just say, oh my goodness, all of this is true. I've moved away from God. I've gone my own way. And God, in His love, did send His Son to rescue me by His broken body and blood. And in that moment, Rich became a Christian.
And Jesus, during Passover, reinterprets, actually fulfills, he tells what all these things really meant. What did that blood over the doorpost really mean? It meant that somebody, something had to pay for the sins of all of us. Because Tim Keller talks about this. He says, we all contribute to the brokenness of this world, don't we? I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I have the blood of Jesus over my life. I'm glad that somebody paid. I'm glad that I don't have to get up every day and go, okay, was I good enough yesterday? Am I good enough today? Am I going to be good enough tomorrow? That isn't what Christianity is. Christianity is not putting trust in what we do. It's putting trust in what Jesus did. One of the best pictures I've ever heard or seen regarding this is in a book called The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Have any of you ever read that by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, read the, the whole series. It's amazing. And in that series, series, there's a person named Aslan, and there's these children that go from our world to this place called Narnia. And when they get to Narnia, there's a white witch there who kind of entices them, some of them, away from following Aslan. And one of the people that they entice away, his name is Edmund. And Edmund begins following her, and he gets kind of sucked into her stuff, and he gets he gets enthralled with this thing called Turkish delight. It's this thing that it tastes really good but never satisfies. And he keeps eating more and more. Eventually he becomes in bondage and in slavery to this white witch. Well, he finally escapes and he goes back to Aslan. But one day the white witch comes and, and there's this big battle about to ensue. And she says, you have to give me Edmund because there's a law written that he has to, he, he, he betrayed you. And he dis, he disobeyed, and he has to pay. And Aslan says, who is the king, he says, I'll pay instead. And the white witch is like, sweet bonus. Yeah, I'll take you. And there's been this table that's set in Narnia for years and years. And it's a table on which is written some of these laws. And this law has written that, that those who disobey pay. And Aslan says, I'll take his place. And so the white witch has him completely shaved. He's a lion. And she shaves him. And she stabs him and kills him. And she stretches him out on this table. And he dies. And it... it pauses for a moment. And there's these all, all these different cr- creatures that talk and stuff like these little mice, like kind of like Disney World, like we went to. The mice took left as, as dawn arrived, and Susan and Lucy walked around aimlessly. They were some of the children that were following Aslan. And as the first rays of the sun broke, they were looking at Caraparavel, that was the kingdom of Aslan. And when at that moment they heard a deafening crack, 
When they turned around, they saw that the stone table had been broken in half and Aslan had disappeared. Lucy asked if it was more magic, and a voice behind her telling her that it was indeed more magic. When they turned around again, they saw Aslan alive and well, and they rushed to him, and Susan asked him if he was a ghost, and he alleviated her fears with his warm breath. And to answer the question, he explained that the witch was right. The deep magic had decreed that all traitors' lives are forfeit, are forfeited to her. But if she had looked back before the dawn of time, she would have read a different law. It means that though the witch knew deep magic, there was a deeper magic still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only before the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness of du- and darkness before, the, before time dawned, she would have read that there was a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And the death of Jesus means the death itself has started working backwards. And he was the one who laid himself out on that table. He was the one who died for us. He was the one that was raised back up and they began working death backwards. And he reinterprets or fulfills all of communion when he says, this lamb that was slain, when they sat down at that table with Jesus, there was no lamb there. Because the lamb wasn't on the table, the lamb was at the table. And the cup that they were about to drink was the cup that he poured out for you and me when he died on the cross. And Paul says, remember this. Remember this. This is... This is what you were all baptized into. This is what we're celebrating. This is what brings us all together. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he returns. And when he returns, guess what he's going to return and have? Another feast. The feast we had today was just a small touch a small touch of a celebration that one day, a small meal. We have, we have an appetizer. Did you ever have an appetizer at a restaurant? It's not the meal. This is the appetizer. And one day we're going to have that full meal. And one day all of that pain and suffering and all that brokenness in our world and all that stuff inside of you that you struggle with and all the sickness that we have. I go out in this cold weather, I can barely breathe. And one day all those lost people are going to be found. And one day God's going to undo everything that has been done. As as, as um, Sam in Lord of the Rings said to Gandalf, is every, or maybe it was, maybe it was um, uh, Frodo himself, he says, is every bad thing going to come undone? And the answer is yes. One day, every bad thing is going to come undone. So when we s- just celebrated this Lord's Supper, it means 
a lot. And we do it monthly. Some churches do it weekly because it is the center of what we believe. Amen. So, Father, come. Come. Let the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And we all say, come. We look forward to that feast. And we yearn and we pray, not only for the lost that Connie was talking about who are lost, but all of our family and friends who are lost. May you find them, Lord. May you find them. And may they come to the table with us and eat with us in your kingdom forever. Amen. So if you need prayer today, if there's maybe if you felt kind of like, well, these people don't belong or these people don't belong, that's what this passage is about. Maybe God wants you to deal with some of that in your own heart. Maybe you've got some stuff that you feel a little uncomfortable with people from another race. Maybe you've been hurt by people from another race. Maybe it's a good time to get healed from that. But more than that, it's a good time for us to know what and and who and why we celebrate. Amen. Come on and get prayer. Amen. Go out and have a good day in this wonderful snow. Amen. Hey.